Thank you, Lois. Well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. You've been dreaming of a white Christmas? Um, we've been for the last, now this is the third week, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we, we are looking at the, the four Gospels in terms of the stories that they tell about Jesus, and in particular the beginning of the story, so the, the birth narratives, the infancy narratives of Jesus in each of the Gospels. The first week we looked at Mark, what there was of the birth narrative in Mark's Gospel. There isn't much, but he does begin his Gospel by saying the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then immediately goes into the ministry of John the Baptist. Last week we looked at um, uh, Matthew, if you recall, if you were here, and we said Matthew was <clears throat> unique because, first of all, he was one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, only two of the gospel writers were Jesus' disciples, Matthew and John. So Matthew was there, he saw it, but Matthew was also a Jew who knew well the Old Testament. So he's going to bring in the Old Testament showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament promise about the coming Messiah. And in particular, when he talks about his beginning of the story of Jesus, he begins way back with Abraham and deals with that genealogy, recall, in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, 14, 14, 14 generations, so 42 generations before Jesus was born, he was truly a Jew. He was a real person, first of all, a real human being. He didn't just appear out of heaven and bang, come down to earth, but he was born from human beings. He was one of us, God with us, Emmanuel, an important name of Jesus in, in Matthew's Gospel. And, and then he uses Old Testament examples of how Jesus fulfilled his promises, beginning with Abraham, the covenant promise, the nation of Israel, and how Israel was formed in Egypt. And even Jesus, young baby Jesus, had to go to Egypt, you recall, for a short time. And out of Egypt, then, God says, God called his son, just like he did the nation of Israel. Some unique things happened there. There was, you know, the, the murder of those babies in Bethlehem that Herod carried out very similar to the murder babies that Pharaoh carried out when, you know, he was afraid that the, the Jewish nation was getting too powerful. But God saved that, that nation of Israel through the miracle birth of a man by the name of Moses. You recall Moses' baby hid in the bulrushes and saved. And in the same way, Jesus was saved through that slaughter of innocence there in Bethlehem by King Herod. So much like Herod was like Pharaoh, Jesus becomes now the new Moses, the new one who would lead his people out of, out of Egypt into the promised land and fulfill all that God had promised. Uh, and I used the term last week, Jesus becomes the new Israel. There is a new beginning now that what Israel was unable to do in the Old Testament, Jesus now is called upon to do and for us. And now we become that new Israel of God. Today we're going to look at, at Luke, a rather unique gospel. Um, looking, I don't think this was up here last week. Uh, 
beautiful, by the way. You can decorate your, your chancel area here very beautifully. Uh, and right away, you're going to see Luke's rendition of the birth of Jesus. This is Luke. Everything we know about the details of the birth, the, the, the night that Jesus was born, comes from Luke. Uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we said, were what we call the synoptic gospels. They're very similar, but they're very unique when they tell the story of the birth of Jesus. Matthew gives us Joseph's account of the birth. The genealogy came through the legal father, who was Joseph, and the angel came to Joseph at the night and said, this which is uh, conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. He said, that was Joseph's annunciation. Matthew tells us that. Well, tonight we're going to see Luke telling us that that same annunciation came to Mary by the angel Gabriel, a story that you're all familiar with. We're going to try to look at this kind of in order and see how these things, they don't, they don't, uh, you know, they overlap, but they don't tell the same story. They, they just tell us something a little bit different. So maybe something you should know about Luke himself. Luke is not a, was not one of the 12 disciples. We run into Luke in the book of Acts. Luke was one of the, the partners of the apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. He just shows up out of the clear blue and Here's a guy by the name of Luke, and he starts using the first person plural in reporting this because Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Luke and Acts go together. And then he starts using the, the pronoun we, and he starts talking about we. In other words, Paul and Silas and Luke were good traveling along together. So Luke is unique in that he's not a disciple, but he obviously had some contact with the disciples, the eyewitnesses who saw this. And obviously, Luke somehow crossed paths with Mary or had close contact with somebody who did know the stories of the birth of Jesus that night because as you read these, this birth account in Luke 1 and 2, you had to be there in order to be able to report this. All right, I know the Holy Spirit's involved here. I'm not denying that. And the Holy Spirit could have just given Luke all of this information, but chances are Luke talked to Mary because you've got a lot of Mary's details here in this story that you would not know otherwise. Okay, Luke is a historian. He's very concerned about dating, dates. In fact, we would not know that this is the year 2022 if it wasn't for Luke. You know that? Luke is the one who tells us, he puts this story, the story of God's salvation within human history. And he did that by identifying some markers with secular history that we know when, for example, Caesar Augustus ruled. Uh, and we know when King Herod died. And we, based on some of those things, we know that this has been 2022, uh, I should say 2000, at least 2026 years after the birth of Jesus because King Herod died in 4 BC. And King Herod was still alive when Jesus was born, didn't, didn't die until Jesus came back from Egypt. 
So how old Jesus was then, we don't know. Anywhere from, I suppose, one to three years old. So anywhere from four to seven BC was when Jesus was born. And we, we base that then on the year of our Lord, AD. We live in the, the year 2022 AD because Jesus was year one, at least how we count the, the years, okay? You, Luke is a historian. Dates are important to him. We're gonna see that. You're gonna see that right away in the, in the, the uh, infancy narrative that he gives here. He uses things like, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. The sixth month after he came to Zechariah in the temple and told him that he was gonna be the father of John the Baptist. And then, uh, you know, uh, Luke 2 begins, in, the, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken. And, uh, you know, thereafter, the, the Roman history that, that follows, we, we understand then that biblical history follows very closely with those things. The other thing about Luke, uh, if you want to give him a, a title, it would be Dr. Dr. Luke. He was a physician. And because he understood the physical nature of, of people, he reports in his gospel a lot of things that the other gospel writers don't about the unique features of, of the human body. And he's going to talk a lot about uh, the importance of Jesus being the savior of regular people. And by regular, I mean people like you and me, not, you know, the high and the mighty. I think we're all kind of humble and poor in spirit. And, you know, the fact that he chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus, a young girl um, from nowhere, Podunkville, Nazareth, and how he chose shepherds of all people to be the first ones to know that the Savior was born in the world. Shepherds, you know, sheep tenders, um, and old people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna in the temple later on. People that, you know, insignificant people, but Luke says, no, they're important. Just like he would later on be the only gospel writer to tell the story of the good Samaritan. Samaritans, despised people. Uh, you know, or the ten lepers, one of them being a, a Samaritan. Luke is the only one that tells that story. The thief on the cross, who, uh, who, to whom Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Only Luke tells us about that thief. So people, you know, women are important in Luke's gospel. Um, sinners, Samaritans, sick people, old people, you know, people that, that People like us, that's, that's who Luke is writing for. So that becomes kind of our, he's our gospel writer. Matthew was to Jews, you know, Mark, well, Mark was, you know, like I said, Peter's gospel, so he kind of was racing through it just to tell the story. John is kind of ethereal, but Luke, very down to earth. He's gonna give us a lot of details, okay? Um, well, if you have your Bibles there, if, if just open up to, I think it's page 1012, isn't it, in your pew Bible, if you, or if you brought your own Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. 
And right away, the first four verses give you an introduction into what Luke is attempting to do here. He's going to tell the story, you know, from the beginning, from the beginning. And that's that phrase he uses in verse 3. Uh, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. <laughs> Who is that? Theophilus. Have you ever run across that name before? Do you know anything about Theophilus? Do you know what the name means? Theos. Phileus. God lover, yeah, is really what that name means. Now, the question is, and you know, Bible scholars have debated this, and, and there, there's no clear answer to what is correct here. Is Theophilus a real person that Luke is writing to? It's possible. Uh, it's also possible that because the name has a, an important meaning, a God lover, somebody like us, you and I are a Theophilus that it's written for anyone who is reading his account. All right? From 2,000 2, years ago until today, all God lovers would, be, would benefit from what Luke has to say here. Maybe that's enough that needs to be said about that opening section. So what we have then is not just the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts that follows, that Luke is going to write, volume one and two, his account a very orderly, systematic, historical account. The story of Jesus, history, from the beginning. And where does Luke begin to tell the story about Jesus? Remember who it was for, for Mark? Mark says the beginning of the gospel, and who does he begin with? John the Baptist. Who does Luke begin with? John the Baptist, but he wants to go back a little further and tell you how John the Baptist came on the scene, okay? And you know the story of, we don't have time to read all of Genesis, or Luke chapter 1 and 2, but you know the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elderly couple, didn't have kids. Zechariah was a priest in the temple doing his duty in the temple, and there an angel comes to him, tells him, you're going to have a child. And Zechariah, yeah, bring to mind anybody else in the Bible like that who kind of in their old age didn't have children, but God comes and says, you're going to have a child? Abraham and Sarah, Old Testament, you, you remember that story. Sarah laughed. Well, I wonder what, what Elizabeth said when Zechariah came home too. Yeah, she might have laughed. But... You know, we start with this, this account of how John the Baptist came into being. He is a miracle child born from Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like Isaac, a miracle child born from Abraham and Sarah. Also another couple in the Old Testament. Anybody know another couple that was barren, that a child was born miraculously and became a famous person? Hannah and well, Samuel was, was the son, yeah. Hannah and, and Mr. Hannah, right? No. <laughs> well, 
I don't know what their last name was, but Elkanah was his name, and Hannah was the gal, and, and Samuel was born, and Samuel, a very important prophet in the Old Testament. So you have these miracle births from old people. Another, another miracle takes place here. Just like Mary is now going to be a miracle birth, you know, Jesus will be born from a virgin here, is coming up. All right, the account then in, in Luke chapter 1 up through verse 25 is Zechariah in the temple. He doesn't believe it, so the angel says, well, I'll show it to you. You're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. Well, okay. He's, it's probably just as well anyway. Just, <laughs> I don't know. But they, they, uh, they manage, and we're going to see there's a little interlude here where we have the Annunciation to Mary beginning in verse 26. And that's going to go on until verse 56. And then we'll see the actual nine months later how John the Baptist is born and named. And then Zechariah opens his mouth and utters a, you know, a song of praise. But the Annunciation beginning in verse 26, you see that? This is Mary's account of how she found out she's pregnant. We call it the Annunciation. It's an important day. In the church year, we recognize that day, by the way. Um, anybody know when it is? And it's March 25th because... Go back nine months from December 25th. <laughs> nine months it takes for a baby to... Form in the womb, huh? Yeah, March 25th. How many of you celebrate on March 25th the Annunciation of our Lord? If it happens to fall on a Sunday, maybe your pastor might mention it, but probably not. But it's an important festival day in the church here. The Annunciation. The angel appears to Mary uh, and says, Hail Mary! Or, if you prefer, Ave Maria. Hail Mary. Kind of the first words of the the rosary, right? Do you say the rosary? You are familiar with it? Yeah. Hail Mary. It begins with the Annunciation to Mary, you know, that she was favored, highly favored by God. That's, that, those are the words that, that uh, Luke gives us here. Mary, the mother of God. Correct? She? Mary, the mother of God. Yes. Highly favored, highly honored. God would be born from a human mother and a young mother uh, like Mary to boot. Um, so following that, that little interchange between Gabriel and Mary, we're told in verse uh, 39 that Mary goes at that time, see, as Luke wanted, very precise about his timing here at that time. He doesn't tell us exactly what day it is, but at that time he went to, she went to a town in the hill country of Judea where she went to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there spends a little time with Elizabeth. We call that, that event the visitation. Have you ever heard of the visitation of Jesus? or the visitation of Mary to Elizabeth. Church celebrates that day too. You have to know when that is? 
You can write this in your Bible. May 31st, the visitation of Mary. Um, and uh, if you happen to be in church on May 31st, you may want to celebrate that event. You know, at least in the mind of the, the church, that's two months after, isn't it? Two months after the Annunciation. So it doesn't tell us here, it just says at that time. Was Mary two months pregnant already at that time? We don't know. Another question to ask is, did she tell Joseph before she went and visited Elizabeth? Or did she get out of town before she started showing? And why would she do that? She what? She wasn't married, yeah. And it's kind of, you know, scarlet letter here. Shameful thing to be pregnant outside of marriage, right? And before you start showing, get out of town. Uh, not so much anymore today, but there was a day when that would happen a lot. Young girls would find themselves pregnant and they'd go live with aunt so-and-so and, you know, town 50 miles away until they gave birth. Uh, is that maybe one reason why Elizabeth, or Mary went to visit Elizabeth? Her relative, we know she was a relative, was it was a cousin or, or what? Probably because of the age difference here, more than just a cousin here. Or did she need somebody to console her and comfort her, give her wisdom? Uh, perhaps both. Perhaps both. Doesn't say. But she spends three months, we find out in verse 56, three months with Elizabeth. And during that time, we have what Luke has as one of the songs, one of the songs of Advent in verse 46 through 55. It's called the Magnificat because, uh, because the word magnify or my soul magnifies or glorifies the Lord, the Magnificat. Uh, Mary has one of these songs here in Luke chapter one. Zechariah later on after John is born, Zechariah will also share a song. We see that in verse 67 through 79. We call that the Benedictus. By the way, the Magnificat, if in liturgical churches, that sometimes is sung during the order of matins. It's a morning service and we'll sing Mary's song at that time. Benedictus is often sung during the Vespers service, an evening service. There are two more songs in Luke chapter two. You know, you know the one for sure, sung by the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse uh, 14. Bev knows this one. We were talking about it before at the dinner table. <laughs> Glory to God, right? Glory to God in the highest. Glory in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace uh, to men of goodwill or to uh, to men on whom his favor rests. Yeah, and then the fourth song that Luke has here. Now, where did Luke hear these words? Were they written down somewhere? Did people tell him? We don't know. The Holy Spirit certainly made sure that they were correct. The fourth song was in Luke chapter 2, by, sung by uh, Simeon in the temple. We call that the Nunc Dimittis. Now let your servant depart to, to beat uh, 
you know, to die. He's ready to die because he has seen the Lord's Christ. Uh, interesting feature of Luke's gospel. Um, I just want to say, you know, I, we could talk a long time about this, obviously. Luke is just replete with details about the, the Christmas story. He doesn't answer all of our questions. I mean, if you're writing the story, in fact, you remember two weeks ago I said, what you should do this Advent, every one of you should write the story from your perspective. You are a witness to the, the story from the beginning. How would you tell the story of the birth of Jesus? Matthew does it one way. He goes back to the Old Testament. Mark jumps right into the, the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke gives us some further detail about that night and the, the beauty of that night that Jesus was born. And we have all of these images that come to mind based on Luke's gospel about the beauty of, you know, the, the sereneness of that, that silent night and holy night. That comes from Luke. Um, but how would you write that story? And John is going to do it, as we'll see next week, totally different. He's going to, you know, really blow your mind about how he tells the story of Jesus coming into this world. But Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, a short story that has inspired and produced more music, more celebration in this world than any other event in history. Think of all the Christmas songs, carols, hymns. Turn on the radio these days. All this music based on this short little story. I mean, you've got the details here. I think we'd like to have more details. Like, you know, did Jesus have hair on his head? What, what color were his eyes? You know? Uh, you know, and, we, and consequently, because Luke doesn't give us all those facts, all those little details that we might want, we, we start inventing some things, don't we? And we embellish the story a lot. Do you think there's any embellishment of the story here? Yeah? Yeah? But is it wrong to do that? No. This probably was not the, the building in which the manger was. You know that? Anybody been to Israel and gone to see the, uh, the, the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem? It's probably one of the most authentic places of all of the, the architecture in the Holy Land. It, is, it has the most authenticity. It, it's built over the place where Jesus was born, at least they believed, and it was built early on in the third century. That's about as old as you can get in terms of uh, Holy Land architecture. And you have to go in and go downstairs underneath in this little grotto, and it's, it's really, I was there 20 years ago, and you, you walk into this little cave-like area, and there's a little niche carved out of the stone, in which they've got a real elaborate, you know, uh, 
star now, the star of Bethlehem in there. And, but anyway, it's very, very um, primitive, uh, very simple and very primitive, but it's a cave. When Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Probably what you think of and how most, you know, children in their Sunday school Christmas programs present it. There's an innkeeper that they, you know, Mary and Joseph, after a long travel, Mary's up on a donkey and Joseph's walking and they're tired and they get to an inn, knock on the door and the innkeeper says, no room. And oh, so what are we gonna do? Oh, I've got a, I've got a little stable back here that, that you can go into and we think of this little shed, something with some animals in it. The inn that our English Bibles translate as in is that the word is katalumati, kataluma, and it really means an attached part of a house where animals were housed during the night. In other words, in this simple little town of Bethlehem, there were, there were homes where people would they'd have a house, and then the animals would be brought in and placed in a, like a lower level of the house where there were little you know, feeding troughs like this carved out of the, the rock or the stone, and our animals were in that house, but there was a house that they were in. They weren't in a separate building. Mary and Joseph probably came to the, the luma, uh, the, the, sh the place where the, the animals fed, because the kataluma, the, the place where their, their relatives, and if this was the hometown of Joseph, very well could have been people he knew that said, you know, we don't have an extra bedroom in the house for you, but you can stay in this area where the animals are. And when Jesus was born, they placed Jesus then in this little carved out area in the rock. It's, it wasn't meant necessarily to be, you know, to show these people as inhospitable. It's just that is the nature of being in a crowded town where a lot of the places were taken and they had to be, they had to be uh, housed in a, in a cave. Uh, but yeah, that, the, uh, all of the, the additions that we placed to the Christmas story, it's not wrong. I mean, uh, It, it helps us to, I think, appreciate what God is doing here in sending his son to be born uh, humbly among poor people, among uh, the, uh, the animals where the animals eat. And the first people, as we mentioned already, were shepherds uh, out in the fields taking care of their flocks. Shepherds who would be, in a sense, uh, prefiguring the kind of ministry that Jesus would himself be doing. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what makes him good? He lays down his life for the sheep. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's only fitting that God then should have shepherds be the ones, poor uh, shepherds be the ones who uh, uh, are the first ones to 
to see the, the child born and then become the first witnesses, the first missionaries. The, uh, the, uh, in verse 21, just to close this out in chapter 2, Jesus on the eighth day was circumcised, it simply says circumcised and given a name, given the name Jesus. All Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, an indication to us, by the way, that Jesus was just like us. He was just a, a normal human boy born who had to also live under the law just like we do. On the eighth day would be eight days from December 25th would be January 1st, counting them as Jews count. 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30, 31, 1. On the eighth day, he's circumcised. So on New Year's Day, uh, be celebrating. Remember that Jesus was circumcised on that day. I'm sure that'll be it. But that's an important day. The circumcision was really a sign of the covenant. God always cut, cut his covenant with his people. There was a, a, a sacrifice, a bloodletting, in terms of God's covenant with his people. There was always a sacrifice. And every male was a, an indication of that. And then on the 40th day, Jesus was taken to the temple, verse 22, for the purification of Mary and for Jesus' presentation, being the firstborn male in the family. He was dedicated to God, and, and sacrifices were required, were required for that also. Uh, you know, the, there would be a, an animal sacrifice, or in case of Mary, it would be, a, because they were poor, it was a, um, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Um, and 40th day, 40 days from December 25th would be, if you do the math, it's, February 2nd. You know, what else is February 2nd? Groundhog Day. Now, this Groundhog Day, don't think of the groundhog. Think of the presentation of Jesus in the temple and celebrate that fact. <laughs> you see, and the, and the church really for, for centuries did that. These dates were important. And Luke is the one who gives us that. He's the historian. He, he tells us these things. It follows up then the presentation of the temple of Simeon and Anna. Again, two old people, you know, who really cares? But they become important for us, for posterity, that we remember Simeon and Anna, and especially Simeon's song, the, the nunc dimittis, Lord, Lord, now let your servant depart. Uh, and, and already there's an indication of what Simeon has to say to Mary and Joseph about the ministry of Jesus. It's going to, he's going to break your heart. A sword will pierce your own soul too, he says. He gives him a view of what, why Jesus came into this world. And in that way, Luke, you know, how he begins his gospel, he kind of ends it. The last accounts in the, the gospel of Luke is the account of the two Emmaus disciples. Again, two insignificant people. Uh, a man by the name of Cleopas and a partner, and it might have been a woman, as far as we know, who knows? But it kind of bookends his gospel, that you begin with Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, and then it ends with the, the two disciples, all of whom, in a sense, were able to see the, the fulfillment of God's promise of a savior, 
the glory of God in the person of Christ. Uh, and, and again, did Luke intend this? I, I kind of think he did when he wrote and put his gospel together the way he did, included those, those events. Well, with that in mind, I know I've probably gone on way longer than 10 minutes, but that was my original goal was to hold these things to 10 minutes. You see what happens. Uh, you get a preacher talking and you just, but Luke is just way too much. Uh, here we have just uh, the whole Christmas story for us. Next week, if you have an opportunity, read John chapter 1, 1 through 18. That's John's Christmas story. And see if you can make sense out of why is that a Christmas story, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again, we have seen and we have witnessed the account of your, your birth for us. You came into this world uh, as, a, as a, a baby, born just like us, taking on our human flesh, our blood, so that you could uh, shed that blood for us on a cross. It's that sacrifice that we remember on Christmas then especially, that you are our savior. That's why you came into the world. That's why we recognize this day. And that's why we anticipate your coming again, not just to celebrate that day, but coming again at the end of time to bring us to that eternal Christmas day where we live together with you forever. It's that anticipation now as we prepare for the celebration of Christmas that we, we pray that you would come into our hearts to enliven. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.